This is episode 30 of the Sachin and Adam show. Today we're here with Peter Stevens, who has a, a financial newsletter called Insufficient Capital, and he does a lot of his um, own investing in his free time. Uh, he also studies, I think it was commerce um, engineering. At yeah, that's right. Pardon? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And the reason why we're doing today's episode is that me and Sachin, we love investing. So we've got like a sort of a deep passion for economics and finance and understanding how the world works and what drives trends. But we also just love researching new businesses just to sort of um, provide theses of our own and see whether they work out in the market. So today we're going to have a very market and investing based discussion. Yeah. So what Adam was trying to say is we're kind of just, we're, we're gamblers that think we know something very <laughs> AFR. Um, but yeah, no, I think this is a kind of a passion that we haven't shared much on the podcast. It's kind of been something yeah. in the last six to eight months, which been getting really into um we probably spend an hour two hours a day talking about markets when 10 a.m well when we're having a coffee someone at 10 a.m hits we immediately um pull out concept check what's going on in the markets but yeah so today we're talking with peter stevens um peter and i actually met what six years ago seven years ago um at a duke of ed camp um as you meet all great investors and um yeah this is probably the first time we've seen each other since but it was a, and I think we, we had Josh Marsh, Mitch there. Um, it was a good time. But yeah, so we've been seeing what you've been doing on LinkedIn. Um, obviously, Insufficient Capital has grown to, I think, over 1,500 subscribers, which is really awesome. And reading your newsletters, you, you write in such like amazing depth um, for someone our age. Yeah. Like, it, you can tell you know yourself. Yeah, yeah. We're like, we, we feel like we're reading something written by Warren Buffett. So I think this podcast will be a good place to start if you're thinking about getting into investing. I know there's been a lot of talk recently about investing. Um, we have a lot of people using their JobKeeper in the markets, things like that. But then also we're also going to discuss some of um, Peter's ideas of stocks to watch. Um, and later on, we're going to discuss the kind of elephant in the room, which is Afterpay. So, um, Peter, we'll start off by um, asking you kind of what your background is and how you kind of got interested in financial markets. Thanks so much for having me on as well, guys. And uh, I really enjoy that Warren Buffett comparison, however inappropriate it is. <laughs> um, so I guess my background is that I grew up in a family business, in a small family business that sells uh, mainly roses. Um, and I, that, that's what sparked an interest in, in business and a, and a passion for how a real tangible business operates. And, you know, it's, it's very easy when, when, you're, when you're refreshing Comsec at 10 a.m. to forget that, that that code, that stock code that you're looking at is a real business with real people and, and real lives involved in that business. Um, and there are many parts of that business that you can't really see from the valuation um, without looking under the hood. So that's what sparked the interest in business. And then thankfully, great, gratefully, at, at the end of high school, I got the opportunity to meet Michael Frazes, who was just starting out a hedge fund called um, Frazes Capital Partners. Not, not a very creative name, but um, <laughs> <laughs> appropriate. And uh, Michael has definitely formed my investing beyond when I first started. So the, the first, a fun fact might be that the first stock I bought was actually Westpac when I was around uh, 13. Wow. And um, so that was in 2011, uh, actually. And that was a very fortunate time really to buy anything because it was sure a legal dude to buy a stock when you're 13. <laughs> I, it's, Unfortunately, it's very high. It's a very high tax rate, actually. Oh, okay. which, um, yeah, which actually seems a bit kind of counterintuitive because you'd expect that the government would uh, would kind of encourage young young people's entrepreneurship and yeah, yeah, and having a go. But the tax rate is like it's exorbitant. I actually can't remember off the top of my head what it is, but I think it's a fifty to sixty percent. Jesus. Um, although most most people probably don't make much money when they're under 18 anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that, you know, that was the first stock I bought. And obviously along the way between when I was 13 and 18, you have different experiences. Mostly the ones when you lose a lot of money is when you make, make the most learnings and you learn about valuation and 
probably and diversification probably the, the hard way. Um, and then when I got to Fraser's Capital, Michael, I think, formed my valuation tools very well and also kind of gave structure to what uh, what the future probably holds and where a young investor, uh, Michael's also a young guy, uh, he's about 31, 32, um, how a young investor can approach the world. And you have to, if, if we want to make a comparison to Warren Buffett growing up in say the fifties, uh, he was investing in brands that were expanding out of the U S um, such as Coke, um, heavy infrastructure projects that were set to benefit uh, the nation very well, such as rail, rail and such other such projects. Uh, he was also in the right place at the right time because America was doing very well out of World War, coming out of World War II. And I think that it's important to, as a young investor, to be forward-looking because the times the time frame is long. You know, you'll be doing this for 40, 50 years, uh, hopefully. And many companies are going to be far larger in 40 years' time because of the industry that they're in. Whereas some such as uh, traditional banking may not be as large. And if, if we use banking as an example, you know, we, we're dominated, we're still dominated by four banks. And slowly, slowly, uh, neobanks and other more competitive institutions are taking market share off, I guess, the slow moving incumbent. And you talked about the, you referred to the elephant in the room being Afterpay, but I guess the elephant is the elephants are the banks, really, in this scenario. Um, if, if I can quickly interrupt you, um, yeah, the sure. fund you worked at, I find it quite interesting that it seems like that gave you a very fundamental mindset because, from what we see on billions and you know about hedge funds, there's a lot of hedge funds that um, do a lot of technical analysis. So, was your hedge fund kind of a long only value based hedge fund? Well, at, at, at the beginning, it actually was a kind of a, a, a jack of all, a jack of all trades. And over time, we and, and Michael kind of realized that our focus should be long only because that's best for performance. That's Sorry. Um, so for those that are watching long only means just buying stocks, not kind of betting against them. Yeah. So I guess, so long only refers to just buying stocks. So if you think that a company is going to be worth more, in future, then you'll you'll buy its stock. If you think that a company is going to be worth less in future, then you would short the stock, as as many people would know from from the big short. <laughs> and, um, and there's some other complexities such as uh, options and, and derivatives, which I guess, I guess are more colourful. And <laughs> so Michael and the fund at the beginning was 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 doing everything and. You know, when you have a small management team, it's it's not hard to do everything well. I imagine trying to do 20 subjects at, at school or university. Um, you, know, you should you should have focus on a few things. And ultimately, we realized that the best thing for performance and also for selling the fund to potential investors uh, was to to make it long only. You know, it, most of the time, capitalism tends to find a solution which is positive for the economy and you know since 1900 uh the australian market and and the u.s market have very similar performance of around eight to ten percent per annum it's very hard to find opportunities which are going to devalue and the maximum that you can make out of a devaluation is a hundred percent you know you can go from you can bet against a company at a dollar and if it goes to zero, then you've made you've made that dollar. Whereas if you go long only, and you invest a company in a company at a dollar, the sky the sky really is the limit. Um, so that's what we realised at Fraser's Capital that we would go long only, and we would focus only on a few thematics, um, such as for example stocks that change the way businesses that change the way we live. Uh, work and play so an example of that might be might actually be zoom which this podcast is being filmed on um 
and Zoom particularly changes the way we work. And that I've kind of brought that into my own personal investing. Um, I would, I'm only, I'm long only as well. And I really focus my portfolio on companies with structural tailwinds, which refers to areas of the economy which are growing faster than the economy in itself. So let's say, for example, education as a sector is growing at 5% per annum and uh, the rest of the economy is growing at 2%, then that would be an area of the economy which exhibits structural tailwinds. Uh, fintech would be another good example, and that's something that Afterpay would fall under. So we can see that you've got a number of different principles for how you choose your investments, which you sort of um, talk about as your ground rules. Could you sort of talk us through um, one of the investments you've made, maybe recently, maybe this year, and how they sort of link to some of those principles which you talk about, and just sort of sort of talk to us about your method of thinking that's got that you're going through when you choose this investment. Yeah, sure. So I think a great example of that would be a company that I, I invested in in very recently, actually two two months around two months ago, uh, called Self Wealth and. Self-wealth is just as, as I guess, a, a basis. Uh, we'll, I'll give you a rundown on what the company does. And they basically provide brokerage services similar to, say, a Comsec or a NAB trade. But their point of difference is that it's a flat rate, $9.50, um, which is very competitive. And Comsec only really competes with them on trades under $1,000. Now, the opportunity with self-wealth is that in Australia, there are a million retail brokerage accounts in total. 55% of those are Comsec accounts, around 10% are NAB trade, and the rest of it is, is very fragmented. And right now, self-wealth has around 50,000, which is 5% of the market. What I like about it is similar to lots of my other investments. I like that they're, they're, we call it like a pure play. So that's all they do is brokerage. Uh, some other portfolio holdings that, that are also pure play would include Afterpay and uh, SmartPay, SmartPay, which competes with Tyro on FPOS terminals. Now with back to self-wealth, the opportunity with self-wealth is that Many people are, are kind of aging out of, of Comsec. It's, it has a high average age and being replaced by, by younger investors. And obviously this uh, COVID has kind of accelerated that, that shift where you do get, you do have a lot of people who may have lost their jobs yet still be earning the same income as before. And it's a great time to, to start investing. And even though many people think that these young investors are, are, are punting <laughs> to use a, uh, a, a, I guess an appropriate word. What self-wealth data has revealed is that it's actually far from the truth. And so we would expect that if people were trading frequently, we would expect half of all orders to be buy orders and half of all orders to be sell orders, as in people are buying and then selling. What, what we've found, what SelfWealth has found, is that 70% of all orders have been buy orders, which suggests that people are setting up a portfolio for the long term mm. and not exiting positions. But um, just, just to quickly interrupt there, even if people are kind of buying more equities, um, what, if they're just, what if they're buying them not based on fundamentals, based on hype? And I think that's something that a lot of people have um, spoken about in the markets yeah, right now. Just, yeah, just to add to that as well, we've seen some sort of statistics um, in the AFR recently that showed all the net inflows of money coming into the ASX. All the gains have been from retail investors and institutional investors have actually seen a net outflow yeah. out of the market. So we're sort of seeing this distortion. But yeah, and just on that point, me and Adam have just like met people kind of in our own lives. We've just been like, oh, bro, have you invested in Afterpay? Like, you know, that whole like predicament. Yeah. And you can tell that um, they don't know too much about the business. Maybe they haven't kind of done some analysis. So I, we are seeing a bit of herd mentality. I'm not sure that yeah. just because they're not selling that doesn't, does mean that 
doesn't mean that they're appropriately valuing the company. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's always a, a risk. And I think that similar to perhaps the experiences I had when I was in my early teens, you, you learn pretty quickly when you get it wrong. And uh, you learn that there are some things that maybe you're not as good at as you thought you were. And that, that is a pretty valuable experience. And like, I, th- I think that if we, if we do go back to those ground rules, there, there are some very simple, straightforward rules that anyone can understand. And really, when you have a, a business, you don't, you don't want one which is very has a very complicated balance sheet you know it would be like if one of your friends had 10 bank accounts you kind of wonder what what they're doing with their lives um it's very it's much more important to be streamlined simple um without too much debt too much um too many burdens owed to bondholders complicated financial structures so i guess you want to avoid and this is actually my first my first ground rule um, is to avoid highly leveraged businesses, because most of the time, if a business doesn't have debt, it's very hard to become insolvent. And that's the biggest risk in, in investing is that once a company goes to zero, it's, it's kind of like death. I mean, <laughs> that that's it. Um, there's no real going back. And the biggest risk to that is uh, having too much debt burden, having interest repayments that are more than your more than your profit. Uh, I would also say that simple businesses are often the best businesses, and businesses that are pure play with a strong, recognizable brand, businesses that you use every day, uh, are often the best first investments to make. Um, and I guess if we if we get into valuation, I mean it's a very you you could do ten podcasts on valuation because we've really seen a kind of a backflip in traditional valuation where you have traditionally people value businesses on a multiple of their profits. So if you make if you make if a business makes a dollar, and I think um, I think it might be worth $10 as a business and every year. So I'll, I'll invest $10 and every year I want a dollar back. That that's the premise of it. And that's what forms what, what's known as a price to earnings ratio. And in that case, it's 10 divided by one is 10. So that's a P of 10. Now, if a business is shrinking and it's, instead of making a dollar every year, it's making a dollar and then 90 cents and then 81 cents, et cetera. And earnings are shrinking by 10% a year. It might only be fair to pay five times earnings for that business. So I might buy that business for $5 and then I expect to get a dollar back, 90 cents back, et cetera. If a business such as, such as Afterpays is growing at, growing its earnings at say 300% a year. So it goes from a dollar to three to, I guess, to $4 to et cetera. And before long, you kind of get to having like a hundred dollars of earnings in, in five, six years time. That that's what makes, that's what makes valuation hard, particularly for growth. What's, what's typically called growth investing, um, which most of the structural tailwinds, businesses are that that that's more of an art than a science and you really have to form a pretty uh detailed opinion on how a business like that could look in five to ten years time Mm. and uh, there is also there is always a fair valuation for everything and it's not like you know things don't things can't just infinitely grow because if you if you extend out a growth rate of 100 percent before long you have businesses that that are bigger than world gdp (laughs) but is there an argument that if investors in the market don't have financial literacy and that's the majority of investors to a certain degree or they don't understand valuations then is there an argument that 
prices may never reflect valuations in the future if the majority of people aren't buying companies based on these valuations. I'm more kind of alluding to like Robinhood investors, all the, the all those kind of trends have been talked a lot about a lot recently. And also like valuations, like what happened with WeWork, mm. um, yeah. Tesla's valuation at the moment. Well, I think that uh, most of the time, um, unfortunately for me, the market's pretty efficient. Uh, so the, you know, 50 years ago, uh, it was very easy to, to get information that was not particularly public. I would interrupt, but maybe quickly explain what an efficient market means before we move on. What an efficient market means that if a company is worth a dollar and if a company is really worth a dollar, the market will value it at a dollar. Now, if the market values that business at 90 cents, uh, then that's not particularly efficient. And then there's a discrepancy there that you can take advantage. I, I guess even if it's a dollar ten, you can take advantage of it by betting on the short side, which um, I'd rather not do. And I think that market inefficiency has just con continually eroded over time, because really I have as much, nearly as much power uh, with knowledge at my fingertips as anyone sitting at the top of a tower in modern place. Um, if I really wanted to go out and find the information, it's there for me. And I can, you know, I've, I can call and contact and, and meet management whenever I want. Uh, and obviously it's much easier for a smaller company, but I, I mean, I've met, I've met the managing director and, and CEO for maybe 40 to 50% of, of my portfolio companies and anyone can do that if they really want to now if you're a guy that's getting their three thousand dollars a month of of job keeper and doesn't understand the business that well they're probably they're probably not going to not going to do that um but then i guess that's why you can educate yourself and read i guess read newsletters such as my own and and, and piggyback of someone else's information <laughs> so um i guess what what i would say is that People should think about business very simply, and if it's if you can't explain it in a few hundred and a hundred words, it's probably not a good investment. Mm. Um, if you can't explain it to theoretically like your kids or some some friend who has no idea about it, you're probably not right, making the right move. And and obviously an an argument does not involve things such as the business should be worth more. The argument involves why is this business worth more? Um, and I think that I, I would, I would highly recommend your listeners and anyone that one of the greatest tools that you can get is to, uh, is to read um, financial newspapers such as the AFR, but even more valuable than that is, and what's really helped me along the years is you should subscribe to as many funds newsletters as you are willing to read. Um, and that's where you can get some of your best stock ideas. So I'm, I'm probably subscribed to around 10, um, 10 to 15 newsletters of, of funds that I respect. And the, you know, these funds put out monthly or quarterly newsletters because they want to raise capital and they want, uh, they're kind of like putting out, I guess, a brochure saying, look at me every, every month and this is what we did and this is why we value this company at X even though it's currently valued at Y. And that's, that's a really good tool for new investors. And I've actually, I've found probably, um, I, I guess maybe two to three investments through reading other people's research, which you then obviously take and, and, and form a larger opinion after you do your own research. I think that's a good point about market efficiency in that there is so much information at everyone's fingertips these days. And that while we can say that there are a bunch of stocks, if we're just talking about the ASX that are overvalued, all of these stocks that we're referring to, like the buy now, pay later ones, they actually do have really strong fundamentals mm. in terms of their earnings growth and in terms of this potential market. But then I guess a drawdown from that is how many players are able to actually be in this market. So what are the barriers to entries going to be for this market in the future 
is a big company like PayPal going to be able to gobble up nearly all the market share in the US for this sector? Or is this something that can accommodate multiple businesses? So while there is overhype, there are fundamentals and there are a lot of risks. But, but well. my question is, even though there is a lot of this information now, do we think that a lot of these retail investors are actually looking at it? Yeah, that's a good point. Because people can still be really irrational with all the mm. information at their fingertips. Well, I guess I, guess I actually never addressed your... We'll, we'll, we'll chat about buy now, pay later, but I guess I never actually addressed, uh, since you kind of jogged my memory about it, about Tesla. And, you know, Tesla... I, you can compare the kind of amazing valuation growth with, with buy now, pay later, and probably even more so because it's on such a scale of valuation whereby Tesla would, would be in, in the top 10 of the S&P 500 if it was included in the S&P 500. So the, the S&P 500 is the 500 largest American public companies, comparable to, say, the ASX 100 or 200. Now... Tesla has grown from, uh, well, it's basically grown about 50 times in valuation over a pretty short period of time. We have to keep in mind that its, it's, produ it's car production has grown by multiples of that. And you have a business which is on the forefront of, of innovation. And it's not uh, unfeasible to see a scenario where with, regulate, with regulatory tailwinds, a vast majority uh, or a, a very sizable proportion of all cars on the road are Tesla. And that's what's being valued currently. So it might not be so ludicrous. Um, now, I, I really focus on Aussie, on Aussie companies because I feel like it's important to invest in what, what you know and kind of what's in your backyard. And it kind of gives me a, a little sense of fulfillment investing in Australia and kind of supporting... Australian companies, but the the arguments behind high valuations or an incredible valuation growth normally it's it's actually efficient and the market normally gets it right and is is looking at what Tesla is going to be like in five, ten, uh, twenty years. But obviously, as as you extend your time frame, your kind of ability to look at what that business might look like uh, diminishes uh, very rapidly. So I think that if the market is looking at what Tesla could be like in five years time, and if it's going to do a lot more than just sell, um, just sell cars, then that's being fairly valued. And you have to, if we go to, if we look at autos as an industry on until about 1940, there are actually, uh, I think around a hundred auto companies in the States, um, which mostly started actually as, as kind of converted agricultural businesses um, such as like tractor manufacturers. And over time you just saw this huge consolidation. Whereas now, so now the American autos are dominated by Ford GM and, and now Tesla. So, it's very risky buying, buying kind of the old, uh, the old brands out of comfort and kind of following the crowd. Uh, and if we look at buy now, pay later, uh, I, mean, I still, I think every day it's important to think, would I buy my portfolio today? Every company in my portfolio, would I buy it today if I didn't own it? And I would, if I did not own Afterpay today, I would still own after, I would still buy after pay because you have a scenario where this business has grown its revenues by a hundred percent, over a hundred percent a year uh, since it listed. It's, it's doing $12 billion of underlying sales, which means, uh, so I guess an underlying sale would be you go to the target and spend 200, $200. Um, that's the underlying sale and after pay will take, 4% of that, which is $8. And that's their revenue. And basically their net transaction margin, which is, um, I, mean, I don't want to get too like technical, but their net transaction margin is around 2.3%. Let's call it 2%, which is somewhat analogous to um, gross margin. Um, 
is so two percent. So they they make around two percent um, gross margin. So two two point three percent to be exact. Two percent gross margin on every sale. So if they do a hundred dollars of sales, they'll make two bucks. Now in this last year, they did around um, twelve billion dollars of underlying eleven to twelve billion dollars of underlying sales, which gives them around two hundred million dollars of of gross margin, which in the long run is, is pretty much equal to, to EBITDA, which is a measure of profit. Now, if Afterpay's growth slows from 100% a year to 70, uh, to 75%, then its underlying sales uh, will go from $11 billion today to $100 billion in five years' time. And they'll make $2 billion of profit if they can maintain their 2% profit margin. And a $2 billion profit uh, will be valued by the market at a high multiple of earnings of potentially up to 40 or 50 times earnings, which gives Afterpay a valuation in five years' time of 80 to $100 billion, which is still multiples of today's valuation of $25 billion. So that's a scenario where investing in growth companies while it looks kind of ludicrous now because it's a 25 billion dollar company making negative earnings and only 44 million dollars of of ebitda uh, so obviously 44 million dollars of ebitda relative to a valuation of 25 billion is is I, I guess utterly ludicrous if you if you take a position that in five years time the growth slows from 100% a year to 70% a year, and that's maintained. Uh, then you have a scenario where a valuation of $25 billion is actually quite cheap based on the potential, the EBITDA uh, potential of $2 billion. Mm. And I also, the, the beauty of Afterpay's model is that over time, uh, it, it becomes in, insanely more profitable. Because if you miss a single afterpay payment, you can't use afterpay again until your account is in order. Hmm. So what you have over time, I, I guess I can't really <laughs> illustrate it um, yeah. with, with audio, is that you, you kind of have its bad debts just, just go kind of like parabolically downwards. Yeah. So you have a scenario where, so they're making 4% revenue margin and basically net transaction margin is always increasing from 2%. It might, in five years time, that net transaction margin might be 2.6, 2.7%. So it's actually a much more profitable business. Mm. And that's, that's what people have to keep in mind. And then you also have to look at the other buy now, pay laters and you have to consider, you know, do those models, do those business models really work? And I think that, I guess, going back to, being in a family business, you really see kind of what a customer wants, what a good business really is. So if we compare Afterpay to say uh, Zip, which has which has gained a lot of traction, and I guess investor interest as well, particularly with the recent partnership announced with eBay, even though it, it, no dollar value was attached to that. But <laughs> anyway, the 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 thing about Zip is that for you to use Zip's full suite of service, you need to pay a kind of subscription to that. Um, and I don't think that that's really going to catch on because it's, you know, if you can use Afterpay for free, unless you're making those $1,000 to $10,000 purchases, which you can through Zip, it's really not, uh, I, I really struggle to see how that can catch on, particularly when you can use a credit card for those purchases. And as long as you pay your credit card bill on time, it's, it's, it's probably going to be a cheaper exercise. Mm. Just a question on Afterpay's market. And by the way, I really like your style of thinking because you've sort of looked over a lot of this sort of talk and hype about there being too much hype or too much overvaluation and you're very stuck to the fundamentals. But regarding the whole um, Afterpay's market, so why do you think their market that they're operating in will keep expanding? And then the second question is, are they taking market share 
from someone else in your opinion? Like, is there sort of sales coming away from banks who are providing sort of debit and credit cards, for example? Like, where's this whole market yeah. being generated from? Well, I think uh, we, with Afterpay, we, we have a scenario where 80 to, 80 to 90% of all transactions are with debit cards, uh, which also makes it a better uh, investment in terms of uh, debt, um, I guess debt, uh, if you're using a credit card, it, it, it really is indicative of a lesser credit um, viability. And I think what is what is beautiful about Afterpay is that it really hasn't, I think it's kind of created its own its own market. Um, I think it's detracted from, it, it's detracted from traditional payment methods such as credit cards. But I, I think credit cards are already, uh, credit cards were already becoming out of fashion. Uh, I mean, my friends and I, most of us don't have, don't have credit cards. Do you mean the physical card or do you have it on your phone? I mean, a, phys a physical, yeah, well, yeah. actually, because most people prefer debit cards. Yeah. Most people don't really feel like they want, most young people don't really want to be, feel debt burdened. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the past, people, I think were more, uh, kind of rec recognizing they, they recognized the fact that <laughs> debt was a part of their, I guess, capital, capital structure. Hmm. Uh, but I think that like many great businesses, Afterpay has created its own market and it's kind of, it's encouraged consumer spending, whether that's responsible or ethical is, is a whole other issue. But you know, if it means that you can spend more on that dress or that, um, that like homely homely good then that's great and that that's that's creating an extra market and that is that's what contributes to economic spending um and ultimately economic growth and i think that the market is big enough for multiple players but i think that the only players that will survive are the ones that really offer a superb value proposition to customers and I think Afterpay does that. PayPal will probably do that, and I think that poten potentially Shopify will do that. But they're they're partnering with other buy now pay laters. Have you heard of Klarna? Yeah, so Klarna's uh, Klarna's not Australian, but yeah. Klarna is a, is pretty competitive in in the US, um, UK, and I think that uh, I mean every every geography is is different and. There's room for multiple players because what's great about a large total addressable market size is that there's a lot of total, I guess it's self-explanatory. There's a lot of total addressable market. You know, you have, if there's a hundred billion dollars of sales up for grabs, you can have, you, you can have 5% market share and you've got $5 billion of sales. And that's also what I like about what I like about going back to self wealth is that when you have an opportunity, which is, 1 million brokerage accounts and the incumbent players are large, slow moving, uncompetitive banks. There's an opportunity there that's ripe for the taking. What, what do you think about self-wealth in comparison to a platform like Stake? Like I know Stake is very much US based, but there's a lot of talk about a Robin Hood type model coming into Australia where there's room for a broker that charges no commission fees and kind of profits off um, that transaction volume. Yeah. So what's actually great about, well, I guess great for Comsec and probably so great for brokerage in Australia and not so great for consumers is that the ASX has a kind of, I guess, archaic, but it, it does protect the investor system uh, whereby we have chess sponsorship, um, which I guess is that your, your securities are kind of held in trust. Um, brokers have to actually pay the ASX for every trade, which isn't very well known. Okay. So basically you're going to have to, if, if, if I buy stock through self wealth or any broker for, for a commission, that broker has to pay the ASX two to $2 50 per trade. And they also have to pay for live pricing. So every time you refresh Comsec, 
um, you guys will be a bit amazed by this, but every time you, every time you refresh Comsec, Comsec pays a little fraction of a cent to the ASX. Wow. Now that maxes out. <laughs> <laughs> Hop on there and keep refreshing Comsec, so then Self Wealth can <laughs> be better. But the um, basically the every time you refresh, Comsec has to pay a fraction of a cent to the ASX, and that maxes out at twenty dollars a month, which is actually a fair bit. Yeah. Um, so you could keep refreshing after that twenty bucks, and Comsec won't have to pay anymore. And uh, that kind of environment means that unless someone is willing to lose money on every trade, uh, we, we won't have free trading ever. Okay. So the kind of idea that, that trading is going to be zero, unless the structure of the entire ASX changes, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and I also seriously doubt that a large American player uh, such as a Robin Hood, um, or there, there's, there are huge American trading houses, um, will come to Australia, be happy to lose money for a market which is relatively small at a million brokerage accounts. There's, there's just not that much in it for them unless they're going to sell other products. And that's the opportunity with self-wealth is that if they can make brokerage a smaller revenue mix, smaller part of the entire revenue mix, Right now, it's seventy percent of total revenue. Um, if if revenue, if brokerage revenue can fall to say twenty to thirty percent of total revenue, then they can be willing to sacrifice some profit, some more profit margin, and maybe even drop brokerage mm. a little bit further. So the other two part major parts of the business is that they earn so twenty percent of their revenue is interest on brokerage accounts. So if you set up, if you set up a self wealth account and you park ten grand in that account, um, self wealth earns the interest rate plus eighty basis points from ANZ uh, of on, on that cash. Okay. So, to I guess put it in in real current terms, that means that they'll the interest rate is 025 percent now, so they'll earn. 1.05% on all cash held in accounts, which is currently around $400 million of in, of in their investors cash held in accounts. They used to pass that on to their um, clients, but as interest rates have fallen, they've decided not to. And I think that's an okay move considering, you know, it, mo no one is really getting a lot of interest anyway. And lots of people have money parked in their brokerage accounts and are happy for that part of their, I guess, capital structure not to earn interest anyway. The other 10% of their business, which is exciting, is they have a kind of a subscription business whereby you can pay $20 a month to have access to um, the best performing or, and, and worst performing, but or the, the kind of range of uh, portfolios in both within the self-wealth kind of sphere and also uh, self-managed super funds, portfolio, equities portfolios that self-wealth has access to through a partnership with a company called uh, BGL, uh, which has that anonymous client data. And the opportunity, I think, is that it's been relatively unsuccessful now where only 4% 4 of self-wealth clients pay for that subscription. And I think that if they can build that out to something, uh, to something that's more attractive, and gain a higher percentage of clients uh, subscribing to that model, then that makes it a very valuable business. And subscription businesses are traditionally very valuable uh, because there isn't, there is no what we call like an incremental cost. So an example of that could be like Zero, the accounting software, is a subscription business, and if you if you join Zero now, the additional costs for Zero to bring you on are minimal, uh, and the cost that they've undertaken to acquire you now is also very minimal, and that's why those kinds of businesses are valued on high multiples 
and something like zero might be valued on a multiple of like 80 times because um, that that's a great business and great businesses normally you have to pay a high price for. Mm. Yeah. No, that's super interesting. Um, if we can kind of go a bit broader right now into the macro economy, right? So there's been a lot of talk about um, QE, printing money, what's that going to do in, to inflation in the future? We've had a lot of people talking about how Bitcoin may be a hedge against um, the US um, inflation, the US dollar. And I think the consensus is from what me and Adam have been researching, but a lot of people are quite worried about the future. Um, I was wondering what your kind of view was for the future of maybe the world macroeconomy, mm. but maybe in specific America and Australia um, and what you see happening. And just to put this in context, uh, context, just yesterday, figures were released that the Australian economy plunged 7%. And that was just in one quarter. So that was the biggest quarterly decrease in GDP figures Australia has ever experienced. And over the next coming months, we're going to see a, a reduction in job keeper and job seeker payments. And so there are some sort of precarious things. And the market and the, the market future. still went up yesterday. Then, so. Well, when a result's better than expected, the market <laughs> goes up. Um, I guess I'll start on a kind of more heuristic, broader uh, uh, kind of cry for capitalism, which um, is really important to consider. Now, even if you go in depth into macroeconomic analysis, what's really fundamental to investing, and I think that I've really kind of grown to appreciate it more, is that you think about what the world looks like a hundred years ago, and you think how many, how many, how much labour was required to produce economic output. Now, if, if Henry Ford um, if Henry Ford was here today and saw the world for what it is now, he would be, he would be gobsmacked really. So he needed to have a production line. So obviously Henry Ford uh, founded the Ford motor company and basically innovated the um, production line process. And that still required huge amounts of labor, huge amounts of machinery, capital expenditure and these are kind of the old style businesses is where you'd, you'd require large amounts of capital large amounts of labor to produce a bit more output than that labor puts in that labor and economic expenditure puts in and you look at the world today and you have a scenario where instagram was sold to facebook for a billion dollars with 10 staff members so every staff member effectively was valued at a hundred million dollars. Now, if Ford could do that, Ford would have been a multi-trillionaire with, <laughs> with that much labor. And I think that that's really important to consider because it's actually a pretty famous Warren Buffett quote that you know, since 1900, there have been two world wars, um, a, a virus in 1918, um, multiple president scandals. This is looking at the US, um, a, a missile crisis, uh, you, you name it. There have been hundreds of scenarios that were apparently world ending. And yet the US market increased by multiples, tens of, I think hundreds of multiples from say 300 points um, the Dow might, I think the Dow went from around 300 points to only 10,000 points. And you think that even with all this macroeconomic uncertainty, the world in a hundred years time, because we're incentivized by capitalism and everyone is trying to find a, an economic solution, the world in a hundred years time is going to be much more efficient and much more productive than it is today, no matter what happens. Um, and I guess that that's what you have to keep in mind. And I, I really try to distance myself. I obviously think about it, but I try to distance my investing from the macroeconomic scenario. I'd rather think about industries and 
areas of the economy that that are most poised to grow over the next 50 to 100 years. Um, but I guess if we do go back to the macro economy, which I don't think is my forte because I've really tried hard not to make it my forte, and I think that there are many people out there that can do it a lot better than I can. Um, am I am I worried about? I think the biggest risk is inflation, and inflation as a result of money printing. I think is an eventual scenario, which is a certainty, and that will really damage uh, the valuations of high-growth companies um, because of base, basically the, the mathematics of valuation of high-growth companies is that you're, you're basically discounting cash flows. You're, you're discounting future profits to today. So if we go back to that simple example of I pay $10 for a business which makes a dollar a year, the dollar in 10 years' time is worth a lot less than the dollar today. That that's the basic premise of discounting cash flows. Now, if interest rates are zero to one percent as they are today, when you discount a cash flow in ten years' time, which is a huge cash flow, as it as it is for something like an Afterpay or Tesla, when you discount a huge cash flow by a low interest rate, it's not much lower today. Is it so? If you if you if you discount a large cash flow that's ten years away, which is a lot of time, by a high interest rate, that cash flow is worth a lot less today, mm. and that's the risk I think, particularly for growth investing. And um, I mean, I'm also I also I think invest in traditional value investments as well, and I actually think that even though if we go back to self wealth, even though self wealth is growing quickly, um, and th there's a there's a very grey line between growth and value investing, what it really means. Uh, even though self wealth is growing quickly, I think in two or three years' time, that business is probably on a PE multiple of fifteen or twenty times earnings. And essentially, every business is a value business because really every business you invest in in five or ten years' time should be on a normal PE ratio of, of you'd, you'd hope it's less than 25 times earnings, but obviously this is an arbitrary number. I think that the biggest risk to the macro economy is inflation. I think that political uncertainty is a very real risk. But then if you look back on, on what I just said at the beginning, like th these kind of political um, risks just pale in comparison to like World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, African conflicts, and that was political instability. And we're we're nowhere near that right now. The the closest thing we have is is North Korea and probably Chinese aggression and the ever problem, the ever existing problem of of Middle East. Um, so that that's kind of what I feel about macroeconomics. But I think it's it's very easy to get caught up on macroeconomics. And really, if you think too much about it, you're probably going to end up not investing because it's really, it's really scary, isn't it? <laughs> I just want to butt in there. Um, first, I want to say that your point about thinking too much about macroeconomics, I think that's really important because I think when you're really obsessed by current affairs, like we are because we're interested in it, you do get a very pessimistic view of the world and you see some of all these headwinds of what's happening in finance and the economy and then you don't really consider that long-term perspective and you don't really consider how things have tend to happen in the past. So that's a good point. Now on your point of inflation, now this is important because the Fed just announced at Jackson Hole, I think it was a week ago, that they're gonna lift their inflation target up above 2%. And that's really important because that hasn't happened for a really, really long time. But while they're printing a lot of money, doing a lot of quantitative easing, the productive capacity of the economy is still really low at the moment. Like what I just said before, we've just declined 7% in GDP over a quarter and yep. we're probably not going to see growth. Well, we don't know how much growth we're going to see next year and we're still going to be under the productive capacity. Why are we still thinking that we're going to experience a lot of inflation if we still preempt that we'll be under productive capacity and that the Fed 
will probably just adjust to that. Yeah, and just to like add on to that, in the GFC, we also printed a lot of money and we didn't actually see that inflation that everyone anticipated. And you saw a huge recovery after. Yeah, so we're, I think we're both trying to question this relationship between QE and inflation and if it actually holds when the economy is in its productive capacity. Do you have any thoughts on that? I guess my thoughts are that it really depends on how the money is spent. And I'd argue that in, in the GFC, most of the Australian stimulus in, in particular um, went to went to places where it, it probably wasn't needed, such as like constructing school halls is, is a pretty random uh, project. And that that kind of that kind of expenditure I, I don't think really results in inflation in the in the real economy. Now the American stimulus for the first time ever is going directly to people who are going to go out and spend it. Now, if I have an extra thousand dollars in my pocket and everyone else has an extra thousand dollars in my pocket, in their pocket, and they're going to the same cafe, which charges $5 for a coffee, the cafe proprietor is immediately, he, he's going to think, well, every, you know, everyone has more money now. We can, and that that's real inflation is when the, the society, the society, the businesses in a society come to the realization that they can charge more for the real consumer goods and consumption drives 60% of economic growth. Uh, it's, it's considerably greater than any other, uh, any other part of the economy, including the US, it's like 70% or something. Mm. We're discussing yeah. The U S is 70% and, and China and, and, and I guess, traditionally viewed as other lesser developed nations are at 40% and less. I think China's actually only 40 to 50% now, which is really, uh, if you think about it, quite surprising. And you know, when it, it really depends on where the money goes. And if the money is going to consumers in an economy where over 50% of uh, economic growth is consumption, then that's a very real risk of inflation. Yeah. Um, but I also think that also being optimistically being optimistic about long-term um, economic growth and I guess the long-term benefits of a, of a capitalist society, uh, we have learned from previous recessions what kind of monetary policy really works and what really doesn't work. Um, and we've, we've taken from those learnings and we'll take from them again in future and we'll see what works out of the COVID-19 induced recession. And we'll, we'll take that into consideration for future recessions. So over time you have to presume just like the rest of the economy, that monetary and fiscal policy becomes more efficient. Yeah. But I, I, think, I think something that consideration is also increasing inequality because it like, it seems like what you're insinuating is that we can rely on capitalism to keep driving growth. But you're also saying that when one Instagram employee is worth a hundred million dollars and yeah. these tech companies are kind of accelerating this inequality, I, I think there's a lot of macro thinkers thinking about like a reset in the system or what, what is this to look like if yeah. it keeps continuing? Yeah, I guess I've kind of been really optimistic and, and, and positive about the future, but, that is one concern I have, and it's a very real concern that I think we live in a society where because of the efficiency, and I guess we saw it in Australia with, I guess, in industries such as manufacturing, particularly like the car industry and whole whole towns being built around that. And, and we saw it in the States in, in cities such as Detroit. Uh, you have a society where I think in 50 years time, unless you're educated in the tools of technology, software, analysis, data analysis. There just, there just won't be as many uh, man, man labor or, or person, person labor jobs out there, traditional laborious jobs. And that's really quite depressing because I think that a very real scenario is that if we keep going the way we are going and obviously Effective taxation is, is very important for this. And I'm a very large fan of progressive tax, progressive taxation. Um, we need to properly incentivize 
and educate the kids of today um, for the future of tomorrow. And otherwise, we're going to go down a path where in 50 years' time, all wealth is accrued amongst the shareholders of these companies, which are also becoming more powerful and representing more of the market. And also, so the, the shareholders of those companies and the few people they have left working for them. And that all, all wealth generated and economic output generated will accrue to those few people. And that's a very, very depressing scenario because you have a scenario where potentially a large proportion of, of the world workforce could just go to the beach every day, theoretically, and live off the government payments of the insane profits that are being made by uh, large firms. And that's a very sad scenario where you have, a, you have a world where potentially depression increases, suicide increases, and that's why we need effective taxation and education uh, to prepare for that for that world and have a smoother transition, which I mean, there won't be a smooth transition, but we need to prepare as best we can and educate the, the kids of the future for that. Mm, very mm. interesting. Um, so we're going to have to wrap up in a second, but I think an interesting question to ask before we ask our flagship last question would be, um, where do you kind of see I yourself? Should last question. Sorry? <laughs> I should have researched the flagship last question. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Where do you where do you see yourself in kind of 30, 40 years? Because this whole kind of time you've been talking about this long term horizon, which I don't think we don't really see that much amongst our kind of instant gratification generation. Um, where do you see the future of insufficient capital? Where do you see yourself kind of progressing in your career? Yeah. Well, I guess I started insufficient capital because I figured that I could help. I, I hoped that I could help as many people as possible. And I would feel very fulfilled if I could make a hundred thousand people or however many many people financially free and, and more importantly literate because um, I guess as the expression that I'm probably going to muck up goes, you can't, uh, I guess you, you can't, you can bring, uh, you can't, I guess it's kind of like you can't teach a farmer. You can give a farm, you can give someone food or you can teach them how to farm or something along those lines. And I guess uh, we, I, I think it's fishing is better. Yeah. I think fishing is the better. Um, Ash, yeah, I think you're right. Sorry. Uh, I'm better on the investing quotes than the, uh, <laughs> the other quotes. But I guess, yeah, that, that's kind of the purpose of the, the newsletter is that I, I want to teach people how to fish rather than give them fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, that would give me fulfillment. And although I never really um, set out to, I guess, make a, make a buck out of insufficient capital, I think that ultimately in 30 or 40 years time, I would love to have an investment fund. Uh, however, I, I would always want it to be beneficial for everyday people and everyday people don't invest in investment funds. Hmm. Um, so, and that's not, that's not particularly fulfilling making, I guess, making money for the person who probably in 50 years time is, is a shareholder or employee of a large company. I'd, I'd rather make the guy who is feeling, um, the guy or girl who's feeling, um, uh, disenfranchised have some purpose. And I think in 30 or 40 years time, I see myself, um, in, in an investment fund, um, whether that's my own or someone else's, I guess, remains to be seen. But always trying to focus and continually write the newsletter and put out um, good content, which is for everyone. And I want to position it. There's a real kind of diversity between um, the bottom level of research, which I think is lower quality. So examples of that could be like, um, I, mean, I don't want to get kind of um, shot by the people, but... <laughs> shot by the people who run these institutions, but for example, like Motley Fool and Hot Copper, that, that kind of research is, is very low level and, and really sp speculation. Yeah. And there's a diversity between that and high level research, which might be 20 page brokerage reports about a company yeah. issued by a Morgan Stanley or UBS, which you have to pay for. And I want to position insufficient capital between those two 
where I might write four or five pages about a company or write about an idea and it's free for everyone. It's complicated to the point where you, you do probably need a little bit of knowledge, um, but not dumbed down or too high level. Mm. I think that, that that's a real gap in the market, the kind of educated retail investor. I think something with me and Adam talk about is a lot of the finance, economic world, even like most industries, a lot of it's actually not that complicated. People just yeah. use bigger it's words to make them stuff. make them seem very like smart. They like throw around things that the average person could understand very well without a finance background, but they're kind sure. of dressing sure. up this industry to make it seem very kind of complex. Yeah. And um, I think that basically like 80, 80 to 90% of all finance is appropriate discounting of future cash flows essentially yeah, yeah. Um, once you understand that you understand everything and that's the sort of central focus yeah but we'll um we'll put your newsletter in the show notes and everyone that's interested in kind of markets and stuff can read your stuff and i'm like even like we, we learn so much from reading your newsletter like i think it's very amazing very much in depth and for those that maybe haven't started investing or don't have a finance background equity mates is a good podcast to start it's on um that yeah, kind of sets you up for um ha- kind of understanding these conversations in yeah. more depth but yeah just if to finish up if I yeah, could also sure. suggest a couple of other podcasts. Yeah, yeah, go for um, it. I would suggest uh, Invest Like the Best yeah. is a great podcast. Masters in Business is a great podcast. Yeah. Um, Pivot, which is a, a kind of tech-focused podcast, is is also great, although it's kind of gone a bit downhill since they started doing it twice a week, which I think that they realize they're running out of content. And if I could also suggest um, newsletters for people, um, yeah, to subscribe. Sure. I guess I could give that to you to probably put in the podcast notes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, cool. Um, and yeah, our last kind of flagship question is um, we have an audience of mostly 18 to 25 year old university students. So if there's something that you want to leave them with from your experience, any anything from your life, um, what would that advice. be? Well, that's a big one. I, I think I'd say that... Um, if we're talking in, in terms of in, in investing, the most important thing for an 18 to 24 year old uni student is to know that the world probably will be a better place in the years to come. And there are many simple businesses out there and opportunities um, for you to take advantage of that without feeling overwhelmed by not being in finance. Yeah. I think that's great advice. So yeah, this was episode 30 with Insufficient Capital co-founder, um, Peter Stevens. Founder. Founder, founder, founder. All right. Thank you very much, Peter. Love that was it, awesome. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. so much, guys.